0: That's on page 15 in many ESV Bibles. This is the Word of God. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him. Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord visited Sarah. Isn't that a rather strange way to put things? If someone comes to visit, they come for a cup of coffee or a cup of tea. Is that what God's doing here? Well, no. Lord is visiting Sarah in this sense that he is fulfilling the promise and granting to her the child of the promise. There's a, the word visit in our text right here is a very, very interesting verb in Hebrew. It means to visit. But it has a huge range of meanings, a huge semantic field, and It's just a delightful word to kind of roll around and, and taste the different um, flavors in it. It means to visit, to, to care for, to pay attention to, to look after. If you turn in your Bible to Psalm 8, you'll see the same word, Psalm 8 and uh, verse 4. What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? That's the same verb in Hebrew, care. Visit, care. And later on in Genesis, this word is used to talk about Joseph being made the overseer, the carer, the overseer of Egypt. So it's a a word which is very, very broad and deep in its meanings. It's connected to the New Testament word overseer or elder or pastor, somebody that pays attention, somebody that cares, somebody that's supervising and making sure that all is well. And so the word in our text, the Lord visited Sarah, is connected linguistically to the word in Greek for elder and So when the elders do their home visits, they're visiting you in a a similar way that the Lord is visiting Sarah. They're seeking your well-being, your good, your salvation, and showing love and care to you, and God is doing that through them. And often in the scriptures, we read that the Lord visited his people, and that means that he came and worked a great salvation. He came, he observed the situation they were in, and he made things right, because God cares. And God knows our needs, and God knows the longing of our hearts. He's not a a cold, distant, impersonal force of pure, sovereign will. Our God is our shepherd. He's our great pastor. He cares about our lives. And maybe Sarah has even stopped asking for a child at this point, but God has not stopped listening to her affliction. He is the great overseer ordaining all things for his glory and for our salvation and our joy in him. And so God, the Lord Yahweh, visited Sarah as he had said. Now, look at your Bible there and see how often the Holy Spirit emphasizes that. As he had said. And the Lord did to Sarah as he had said promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time which God had spoken to him. Three times the Holy Spirit calls our attention to the fact that God is faithful. That God keeps his word. That God keeps his promises. That God does what he says he is going to do. That you can count on God. That you can build your life on his promises. They are rock solid and that is true of Sarah and that is true of the entire history of the world. The entire history of redemption, they testify to the fact that God is faithful, that he does what he said. And so the Lord visited Sarah as he had said. Now the word visit, like I said, is a very, very deep and rich word, it can also mean appoint or call to be an overseer. It has the idea of giving an official task or function. And that's also happening here. Sarah is being called to enter into her office as the mother of all believers. Abraham is the father of all believers and Sarah is the mother of all believers. Let's going to stop here and, and reflect on that. Sin, pain, misery came into the world through the woman. She took the initiative and the man followed her. And that brought a lot of pain. And as you read through the history of redemption, you see how often God makes the point of putting women first in the joy of salvation. It is the women who are the first witnesses of the resurrection. And it is through woman that the child of the promise is born. In a very real way, our eternal life and eternal joy depend on Women in general, and specifically here in this text, on Sarah. The whole thread of redemption goes through the fruit of her womb. And so we praise God for his work in in Sarah's life and in using her in this way. And Sarah conceived, verse 2, and bore Abraham a son in his old age. Now, how, how did she do that? How could she? Well, the Bible tells us, Hebrews chapter 11 says this, by faith, by faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. By faith. Sarah herself received power to conceive. You see, God promises, and God's promises call for a response of faith. And despite the weakness and despite the difficulty and despite their initial incredulous laughter, Abraham and Sarah, in the end, held on to the promise. And they held on to the promise even when it didn't seem to make any sense anymore. Even when it seemed like, I don't think God's going to be able to do this anymore. It's just impossible. They kept holding on to the promise. And brothers and sisters, that's the way of faith. God brings about his eternal decrees in the way of faith. He doesn't move us around like little pieces on a chessboard. He doesn't manipulate us like those little dolls that have all those strings on them. I forget the the word for it right now. He he doesn't make us into robots that he can remote controls, but God works his eternal decrees through our heartfelt response of faith. And so Abraham is the father and Sarah is the mother of all believers. And then look at verse 3, Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. You notice how the Holy Spirit makes a point of saying who Isaac was born to. This is a child born to Abraham. God had promised that. And specifically not to Abraham through any other woman, but specifically to Sarah, his wife, whom Sarah bore him. God had promised that as well. This is the son of the promise. And what is the response of Abraham? It is a response of faith. Faith is trusting that God will keep his promises. Faith is also obeying God's revealed will. And back in Genesis chapter 17, God said, you shall call his name Isaac. That child who you don't think it's possible that he will be born, you will call his name Isaac. He laughs or he will laugh. And so when it happens, against all hope, then Abraham remembers what God had said, and Abraham does what God told him to do. He called the name of his son Isaac. And that response of faith continues through the verse 4. Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old. Because that's what God told him to do. And for the first time in the holy line, which goes from Genesis 3.15 right down to the birth of the Messiah, this is the first time that someone in that line of the Messiah is circumcised at eight days old. Well, there were other people in the camp, I'm sure, children by this time that had been circumcised at eight days old, but this is the first one in the line of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old as God had commanded him because that's what faith does. Faith trusts, faith believes, faith obeys. Trust and obey, there is no other way says the children's song. And that's what Abraham does. God is faithful, God keeps his word, God calls us to a response of faith and that we are faithful and we keep his word by his grace. It's so simple Trust what God says, do what God says, so simple, and yet every misery in human life comes from neglecting these two simple precepts. Now Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him, he was five. He's old, and biologically, the older the man is, the harder it is for him to conceive. Same with a woman, for different reasons, but also biological reasons. Sarah is post-menopausal. She's not physically able to have children at this point, in the normal way. Genesis chapter 18, we were told that the way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. You remember what we read in Romans chapter 4, that Abraham hoped against hope. And yet he did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. And there's a reason that all of this is happening in this way. They've been through the most fertile part of their life with no children. And now, when all human hope is expended, God finally acts. And God does that for a reason, because it's not about us, it's about him. see, that's the whole thing about the fall. The fall was, it's all about us, it's not about you, God. And God says, no, that's not the way things work. And so redemption is us relearning how to live properly. That it's not about us, it's about him, it's about his glory and his glory and our salvation go together. And so God waits. He waits until all human hope is expended. And so when he works salvation, there is great rejoicing. Look at Sarah delighting over her little baby. Who would have said? Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? She's 90, 91 years old by now. And of course, back then, the patriarchs were living, people were living longer. There was still the the fumes of of paradise. Uh, There was still more vigor and life, uh, which which has since decreased. Things are getting worse generation by generation, also as the DNA of the human race uh, gets more corrupted. So she was probably physically much like a, a woman in her 50s or late 50s for us, but it's still very surprising that she's nursing a child. What is God teaching us in the way He did this? Well, He's teaching us because He waits until it's absolutely clear that there is no hope in man and there is no hope for man, and that the only hope is that God would do something. You see, if Abraham and Sarah in their prime of life had produced a a child, Abraham a great prince, Sarah a great princess, they produce a a little prince who's healthy, and they're in the prime of life, and and it could be tempting then to just see, oh, look at this great royal house of Abraham and Sarah, and now their royal son, and how they're just going to grow and become more and more powerful and glorious, and, and, and it's so tempting to attribute the progress of salvation to man. And so God just waits till that's impossible. It's just absolutely impossible. It's like we read in Romans chapter 4, that Abraham believed in the God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. And that's often how God works. That's always how God works. You remember Joseph. He was reduced to an imprisoned slave. And if you read the story up to that point, you think, well, that's the end. How can he possibly get out of this? And he can't. And yet God turns things upside down and makes him the ruler of Egypt. And you see shortly after that time that the patriarchs are about to die from famine. There's no food. What does God do? He rescues them from the land of famine. He brings them into Egypt and he feeds them. You remember at the Exodus, when the people of Israel thought they were free from Egypt and they come to the Red Sea and they've got the Red Sea in front of them, they've got the Pharaoh's armies behind them and there is no way out and there's no way they can fight Pharaoh's trained troops and all seems lost. And that's when God works salvation and that's when God opens the sea and brings them through it. That's the way God does things. That's the way God does things all through history. That's the way God does things for the church. That's the way God does things for you and for me in our own individual lives. The suffering, the affliction, the waiting, the hoping against hope, and the conclusion that things are in such a state that there is no way that I can fix this. There's no way to escape there's no way for me to make things better or any human being to make things better. You know, our Brazilian brothers and sisters have this saying in a situation like that when it's just, there's no, there's no way out. There's no hope of relief or of any human remedy. And so our Brazilian brothers and sisters, in a, in a case like that, they say, saw dills. Saw dills. Only God. That's the only hope. And that's where God wants us. That our only hope is that God would act. And that's the lesson we need to learn throughout history and in our own lives. God is teaching us. God is constantly reminding us, look to me, all the ends of the earth, and be saved, for I am the Lord and there is no other. And that lesson, that truth, that dynamic comes to one of the most powerful, the most powerful expressions on the cross at Gorgotha. When all seem lost, the darkest moment in the history of the universe when the very Son of God, His body is hanging on the cross, tortured and racked with pain, and the demons of hell are rejoicing, and His life is ebbing away and what seemed to be the greatest defeat, God turns into the greatest and most glorious victory. And this is what we've mentioned before. This is not the theology of glory, but this is the theology of the cross. That's how God works and how we need to know that, brothers and sisters. If you turn in your Bible 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26 to 29. That's on page 952. Paul refers to this dynamic. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. God chose to use a man and a woman who were almost dead to bring about new life. That's how things work in the big picture. And that's how things work in the little picture of our lives. Your pain, your weakness, your affliction, your brokenness, the longings of your heart, your cries, how long, O Lord, and our deep awareness that we are unable to change our own lives, let alone change the world. God is using that. He's using that. He has a purpose for it. And he tells us time and time again what he wants from us. Wait on the Lord. Wait on the Lord. At the appointed time, he will visit you. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient but the things that are unseen are eternal. Wait on the Lord. That's what Sarah had to learn. That's what Abram had to learn. Well, we've got to learn time and time and time again, brothers and sisters, wait on the Lord. That's what the pain is telling us. That's what the affliction is telling us. That's what sometimes when we're feeling hopeless and despairing, that's what it's telling us. Wait on the Lord. Because all of this ends somewhere. And it ends in laughter. And you see in our text how often the word to laugh or the verb to laugh or words connected to it occur. You look at verse 3. He called the name of his son Isaac. He laughs. That's the verb in Hebrew. You look at verse 4. He circumcised his son Isaac. He laughs. Look at verse 6. God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me or, or laugh with me is the idea. Rejoice together with. It ends in laughter. It ends in joy. It ends in victory. And that's true in the little picture. It's true with a narrow focus on Sarah there, her her desire to be a mother. A lifetime of longing. A lifetime of pain. A lifetime of grief. And finally seeing her body drying up, and her husband's body drying up, and that little thread of hope that was there all those years finally gone, and the tears and the sadness and the grief is turned to joy and to laughter. It ends in laughter. That happens for Sarah and Abraham. It ends in laughter. The the church there in the Old Testament, Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, and all the, the people together with them, the church in the Old Testament is filled with laughter. And that's true also of the big picture. Because Isaac isn't just a baby that God gave to a woman who was praying for a child. But Isaac is the child of the promise. Isaac is the next one in that line from Genesis 3.15 right down to the birth of Jesus Christ. Isaac is one more step towards the birth of that child, not born to a post-menopausal woman. That's difficult, although it is possible. Scientists have actually discovered injections which can start up ovulation again after menopause. So it's difficult, but it's possible biologically. But Isaac's one more step on the way to the birth of that child who was born impossibly. Born to a virgin. Born to bring in, to usher in a new world. And to redeem for himself a new humanity. Isaac's birth is one step closer to Christmas. And as happens in Abraham and Sarah's life. Leading up to the birth of their son. So the world experiences in the lead up to the birth of the child in Bethlehem. It's that same dynamic in world history. There's suffering followed by joy and new hope. You remember what the prophets speak about, the people walking in darkness, the people walking under oppression and groaning because of the oppression of sin and the enemies. To them comes the promise, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. You see, that's what it's all about. That's who it is all about, that holy child. And he will walk the same path, the way of the cross. And you read about that in in Isaiah chapter 53, that glorious chapter which expresses in such a poignant way the suffering of our Savior, his suffering, his death for sinners. And then at the end of that glorious chapter of Isaiah 53, you, you read the fruit of all his suffering and pain is that he will make many to be accounted righteous and he shall bear their iniquities. You know what happens in the next chapter? Chapter 53 ends with saying, he will see the fruit of his travails, the travail of his soul will be satisfied. And chapter 54 starts off with, sing, O barren one." And chapter 54 goes after to rejoice over the fact that the church, who was barren, who was small, who was despised, who was considered as nothing in this world, because of the work of the Messiah, will sing, rejoice, and laugh. She'll have to make her home bigger, says the prophets, because her children will be so many that they will fill the world. And so we've got to keep things in perspective. Brothers and sisters, that's the story of the world. A lot of pain, a lot of hope, a lot of suffering, a lot of affliction, a lot of hopelessness, a lot of seeming defeat, a lot of hoping against hope when it comes to being a child of God and thinking, well, how is God going to fix this? That's the story of the world. And then He does. And that's the story of our lives as well. The story of great suffering, the story of great loss, the story of great affliction, the story of great catastrophe is also a story of great expectation and great deliverance and great salvation and great glory. And all the things that you're going through right now, and all the pains and travails of your soul, And yes, even the times when things seem absolutely hopeless and it doesn't seem that there can be any solution. God, through that, is bringing you to the feast that never ends. And oh, the joy, and oh, the laughter, and oh, the stories we can share. And children, at that great feast which never ends on this renewed earth, when the heavens come down to be united with the earth, that great feast which never ends, it's never nighttime, and so there's never bedtime. And so you get to rejoice with the adults and with Jesus and with the angels forever. Imagine that, no bedtime. So what's going to happen is the the fulfillment of what the Old Testament people of God already experienced in the return from exile. We read about that in Psalm 126. I'm going to read that psalm for you right now. 126, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter, our tongue with shouts of joy. They said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. And that Old Testament celebration of God's salvation comes to even more glorious climax in that song sung in heaven in Revelation chapter 19. And I'm going to end with that. Revelation chapter 19, verses 6 to 9. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, And the angel said to me, Write this Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Amen.